I'm no John Bresnik. I'm not Alexei Voyodova, and I'm certainly no Travis Bajant. But I think there's a window of opportunity where I could compete for the arm wrestling world championships. This is the year. I think if I really train, I could win the world arm wrestling championships. I mean, they spar by groups, and I'm already, by age, in the grand master's group for people over 50. Now I admit I probably might not seem to have what it takes to be a great arm wrestler, you know, powerful biceps and all that, but I'm willing to train and drink a lot of protein shakes. Okay, that's never going to happen. I, I need to be honest here. I'm never going to win an arm wrestling championship, not even against my own wife. I mean, she's, she's strong like bull, right? I mean, this is... But imagine, imagine for me to publish a book. I write a book about how I expect to be the greatest arm wrestler of all time. I'm talking on the John Bresnik level. You say, I don't know who that is. He's the greatest arm wrestler of all time. I actually looked it up. He has won the Golden Bear titles in the early 20s and has such ability to arm wrestle that he's been called the best in the world. But imagine I go home tonight and I call him out on Twitter. Hey, John, puny John, how about you and I sit down and see who's better? Right? I could even give him my home address and my phone number. Oh, that would be foolish. I think we all realize how stupid that would be for me to challenge this man. You, you go and Google a picture of John Bresnik. I mean, he's just a kind of a mountain of a man with these huge arms. Um, I, if I were him, I would ignore such a challenge. He's the goat of arm wrestling. And I'm, I'm still trying to get the lid off that pesky pickle jar at home. But if you were Asher Banapal, imagine, here you are, you're in your palace in Assyria, and you have conquered much of the known world. And some little prophet from a little region that has been surrounded by your armies on different occasions writes a short little book and calls you out and says, you are going to be defeated. You will be defeated, your city destroyed, and it will be so thorough that historians are going to believe for the next 2,500 years that you didn't even exist. The people who write about you they're going to be, in, in history, in times past, people say it was fantasy. It's a, it's a fictional town. It's like Olympus. It's like Atlantis. Well, you might get pretty angry, don't you think? Somebody calls you out like that. Here you are sitting in your palace. You're the greatest on earth. And that's probably how Ashurbanipal felt. He saw himself as a great warrior king. He certainly thought of himself as someone to be reckoned with in the ancient Near East. Archaeologists in 1854 unearthed a cylinder. Uh, it's like a, um, a little clay, uh, partially round, sometimes octagonal, different, different shapes, but a little cylinder in which he had words described about all of the kings 
he conquered, including one named Manasseh. Now, he wrote that cylinder because he read that book. He read or someone told him about that little prophecy by that little prophet named Nahum. And he read or heard of that book and he said, I want their king and I want him here and I want him now. Well, here's how the Bible tells that story. In 2 Chronicles 33, God brought upon Judah the armies of Assyria who captured Manasseh and bound him with hooks and chains. Some of the imagery that is still uh, extant, it's existing today, is of uh, people who Sennacherib, later Ashurbanipal, captured. They would put hooks, metal hooks through their nose, and they would make them come along and follow where they, where they would go, like little, like little puppy dogs on, on a chain. He put him in hooks and chains. That's what the Bible describes. He was imprisoned in Nineveh and would have been mocked as weak and powerless. Interestingly enough, Manasseh was a very wicked king up to this point. But it's while he is in Nineveh that God turns his heart to repentance and he begins to worship God again, likely because of what God wrote through his prophet Nahum. Now, the theme of Nahum is pretty simple. God speaks through his prophet to the people of Assyria and informs them, while they seem to be a powerful nation, the greatest on earth, their power is nothing in comparison to him. They have a strong army. He's God. Come on. Though Judah and Israel was little in comparison to the mighty Assyria, God was on their side. There was no way Assyria could do anything. And all of this is built off of Nahum. I think the point, both to Ashurbanipal and to the Assyrians, is to let them know, you're in trouble. But then, to encourage Jews who had been conquered by the Assyrians, later those who would be conquered by the Babylonians and the Persians, to return and trust in God. And the lesson for us as we live in an increasing post-Christian society is instead of fearing the future, and I think it's legitimate that we could say, I kind of do fear what's coming. How much has our culture changed in the last 10 years? When President Obama, when his vice president announced a change in government policy, this is the vice president announcing a change in government policy. Let me tell you, that doesn't happen. Regarding homosexuality, it made national news. That vice president is our current president. Now, I want you to understand that policy and in relationship to homosexuality, that, that was only, what, six, seven years ago? The change that's gone on in our culture. And you look at it and you fear. I'm telling you. We live in a post-Christian culture, but we don't have to fear that because we should trust in our warrior God who ultimately will win victory. So, let's number one. We should trust 
in God, the divine warrior, who cannot be defeated, right? I mean, I've, I'm wrestling this guy. God puts his hand on the scales. You can't defeat God. God's warlike prowess is unmatched. If you go back to chapter 1, he describes God's attributes. Vengeful, first three verses. Powerful, next three verses. Just, next two verses. The whole beginning of Nahum, let me tell you about God. And when you realize what he's saying, he says, then his will, this powerful God, who is vengeful and powerful and just, his will is inviolable. He determines the course of nations. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He showed beforehand how Nineveh would be destroyed, that the defense of the city was a fruitless activity, that man cannot stop God. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. He even says, let me tell you what's going to happen to Nineveh. The ladies will be enslaved. The wealth of Nineveh will be plundered. The power in Nineveh will be consumed by fear. They, they will actually, their faces, these hardened warriors who had conquered all these other countries, their faces will turn pale from fear. They'll be frightened to that extent. So God declares his intention to destroy his enemies. He says, I'm against Nineveh. And you see in chapter 2 and verse 13, and later in chapter 3 and verse 5, Here's the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. And what army does God possess? It's not a human army. This is the God of angelic armies. Think about how the one angel was destroying Jerusalem. One angel only needed one. And there was no way to stop him. Imagine an army of angels. Remember when Jesus was born, there was in the sky a multitude of the heavenly host. The armies of heaven sang that Jesus was born. These armies, he says, I am against you, says the leader of an angelic army. And he says, I will stand up against your wicked city. And all of this is because God was in covenant with Israel. God loved his people. He promises it back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, to end their affliction. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, that peace will be declared in Judah. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 2, what was ruined will one day be restored. God's invincible. It, it is futile for man to wave his puny fist at an almighty God. We are today, friends, and I, I'll be as delicate as I can be, but we are living this month in a time where man in our country is waving his puny fist at God. I reject the way you made me. And what do you think God is thinking? How do you think God is going to react to that kind of thing? Now, instead of looking at all that and getting sad and mopey, right? You can do that. You can look at it and get sad and mopey. You can build a bomb shelter in your backyard, I guess. I mean, I'm not allowed to. They covenants and all that. Or subdivision. But, but maybe you could build a bomb shelter. You go live out in the middle of Montana somewhere, you know, middle of Wyoming. Uh, 
hope, hope that goes well for you. But what, 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 what do you do? How do you respond? I, I think the answer is to say, okay, I'm going to trust in this God. Too many Christians over the last particularly 100 years, I'm talking post-Civil War America. I mean, things have been pretty good. We've had our downturns, but but industrial industrialized America, late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, you got the whole market crash, you got World War I, World War II. But you you got some periods of great peace and really lots of prosperity. And what's come out of that for us has been things like Christians trusting in their financial security. And Christians trusting in American military strength. And Christians trusting in our constitutional system of government. And Christians trusting in democracy. And Christians trusting in technological innovations. All of these, though, are the wrong answer. And for people already living in some sort of exile, they had none of these things. I mean, you think about what the people reading Nahum who were living in some sort of exile because the Assyrians had already destroyed the northern kingdom. They had no financial security. They had no military strength. They had no system of government. They didn't even have any kind of religious cult activities that they could do. They weren't, they weren't sacrificing lambs and worshiping God, Jehovah, in, in Jerusalem or anywhere else. They were enslaved. They were defeated. They were powerless. Their only resort was to trust in God. But didn't that seem a bit foolish too? I mean, here they are in exile. Where is God? Some thought. Where's the promise that he made to us? Some were thinking. And so what Nahum says to those people while addressing those who seem to be in charge, he says to them, don't worry, trust me. Don't, don't worry. And I'm telling you, friends, when you look at all that's going on in culture, and sometimes it does, as a Christian, feel a little oppressive. Now, this is my personality. I don't mind getting into conversations on things like gender. I don't mind. I think some of these, it's ludicrous, the things I talk about with people. I try not to be obnoxious. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be... I don't want to unnecessarily upset people, but I'm not ever going to stand up here and say, hi, I'm Pastor Matt, and my pronouns are they and them or he and his. I'm just never, ever, ever, ever going to do that. And it's not because, again, I'm trying to put out some political thing. I am trying to say it's because this said it. That's pretty easy. And I know, I know that makes many Christians uncomfortable because it sets you in an adversarial position against the world. Friends, we're already there. They hate Jesus, he said. Don't be surprised, they hate you too. So I say the answer is just to trust him. Don't You don't have to be obnoxious. Look, somebody stands up. I'm at some secular thing. Lady stands up, says, I... I'm whatever my name is. I'm she, her, whatever. I'm not going to stand up and go, come on. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be obnoxious. I don't, I don't think that's right either. But if I'm put to the test, I'm going to stand up for right. Because I'm going to trust the God who did it all. Now you say, how would Israel look at this? Well, 
this is the part that gets kind of fun because here, well, here's what God does in Nahum. A after Nahum constructs this argument saying, trust God, he then turns and he says, okay, not, not only because God is a divine warrior who cannot be defeated, but now here's the warning. And he's warning those who stand against him. You will inevitably fall. So this is number two. We trust in the warning that those who stand against God will fall. And Nahum ends with these six taunts. And God actually taunts Assyria. He mocks them first as a weak lion who will be eaten like a prey animal. You see that in verse chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Where is your feeding place? Even the old lion. Maybe that's Sennacherib. That old lion. Maybe Ashurbanipal. And the lions whelp. That's why people think it's Sennacherib, right? Because that he was the dad. And then Ashurbanipal is the lion's son, the whelp. And no one made them afraid. Oh, I am against you, says the Lord of armies. I will burn your chariots in smoke and my sword will devour your young lions and I will cut off. You will no longer plunder the earth. You will have nothing more to plunder because you'll be too weak to do it. And you will have no ambassadors to go out because the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Your armies will be defeated. And, and, and what, I love this, they did what they wanted. In the early days of the Assyrian Empire, they think all is well because they can do whatever they want. They're destroying people for their food, verse 12. But God says, you will be destroyed because he was against them. And it's a military destruction. Their chariots would burn. It's an economic destruction. They would have no more merchants selling their spoil. It's a political destruction. They will have no more government. It's a complete annihilation. And that's the first taunt. Let's look at the second one. Taunt number two, the murderers will be murdered themselves. Chapter 3, verse 1, woe to the bloody city. It's full of lies and robbery. The prey departs not. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheels and the prancing horses and the jumping chariots. God mocks Assyria as if lamenting her demise. As if God, God a term of woe. God's saying, whoa, it's so sad. Uh, it, 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 there's almost a sarcasm here. Isn't it so sad that they're going to be in trouble? The word low is typically used, woe is typically used in funerals or, or to signal a threat. But here the term is used, I think, sardonically. It's mocking scorn. The bloody city will be filled with the sounds of, of the army once more. It, it would not be Assyria's whip. It would not be her horses and chariots. No, the city will be put to the sword just like she did to others. There'll be a pile of corpses. Look what it says here. It's really quite incredible. In, in the middle of verse 3, there's a multitude of slain, a great number of carcasses. None, none end of their corpses. They will stumble upon their corpses. There's, there's such a piling up of the dead in, in Nineveh that the people rushing in to conquer the city will actually fall down on those who had already been killed. That's a pretty powerful statement. Taunt number three, Nineveh will be shamed. In verse four, we have two illustrations giving, given here, the harlot and the witch. Because of the multitude, verse four, of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, 
sells nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. I am against you. I will discover your skirts upon your face and show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame and cast abominable filth upon you and make you vile and set you as a gazing stock. So now he's mocking her, the Assyrians and the Ninevites as a shamed prostitute and as a witch. People who use the occult to try to predict the future. And, and what he's saying is your destruction will be so total, it will be a spectacle for the rest of the world to watch. And, I, and, and if you notice the word gazing stock, uh, stock it's the idea of um, in not even that long ago past, but for many, many centuries, when someone did certain crimes, they would put them in the middle of the city in the stocks. You, you go to Williamsburg, you can see the stocks. Uh, they still have them there. They would put them in stocks. They put a place for your head, place for your arms, you know, and you kind of sit there and you can take pictures. They put, you know, put dad in the stocks. Everybody laughs, takes a picture. This is kind of what he's talking about here. I will put Nineveh in the stocks and I will pelt her with filth. That's kind of what people did. You know, if you were a criminal, they would take old rotten fruit and kind of throw it at you, you know, walk by. The town square, there you are. You know, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. And God says, I will make you a spectacle. I will expose you to the world. You will be seen as vile. And, and no one will care. No one. No one's going to moan. What happened to Nineveh? Isn't it so sad that Nineveh was destroyed? Where would I even seek comforter for you? Because you'll be covered in dirty things. And you'll be shamed. Taunt number four. The city will be conquered like Thebes. Look at chapter three and verse eight. Are you better than the populace? No. That was situate among the rivers. God mocks Assyria as, as if she were Thebes. No is the city of Thebes. Ironically, was destroyed by the Assyrians in 663 BC. It was geographically defensible. It had the Nile River and at certain times of the year, the Nile would overrun her banks. It would look like a sea. And she had relationships with other Egyptian alliances. It talks about the other alliances here. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. And yet it was destroyed. In fact, if you read the history of Thebes, it was conquered. It would give up and surrender. And then it would go back. And it just kind of went back and forth until finally it was conquered completely. God says here, the destruction of Nineveh would result in terrors that were inflicted on Thebes. Nineveh will be destroyed, her children would be murdered, and even her gentlemen. It's, it's most noble men. Those who held positions of leadership, they would be put in chains, and they would be led to the town square, and they would be sold into slavery. That is a pretty powerful taunt. Taunt number five, the city will be defenseless. You will also be drunken. God mocks Assyria by stating she's inadequate to defend herself. And you find these five metaphors. You'll be drunken. You'll be hidden. Uh, you, you won't, you'll be like uh, the overripe fig tree, like an elderly woman, like a city without gates. You're all these things. You, you can't defend yourself. A drunk is too uh, inebriated to defend himself. Um, the overripe fig tree. You shake the tree and the figs just kind of fall off, right? That's kind of the picture here. Falls off into the mouth of the eater. You're like an elderly woman. He says in verse 13, the people are like women. 
Uh, well, an elderly woman cannot defend herself. He talks about the city being without gates. You better go start making some bricks because you're in trouble. All the preparations are meaningless and you're, you're, you can't defend yourself. So all of these things you're trying is hopeless. And finally, taunt number six, the city will be spoiled. Verse 15, the fire will devour you. God mocks Nineveh as one fit for consumption. And it's interesting, we have two words that indicate destruction, a fire that burns it all down and a sword that kills off the people. And he says that there are grasshoppers and, and, and there's actually a bunch of references to grasshoppers here. And they're used in different ways. The first use of grasshoppers is talking about a young locust that has a giant appetite. The really little baby locusts who just have come out and they're ready to eat. And so they're biting everything, right? They're eating up all the crops. And they will eat up all that you have. They will spoil the city. So that the city will be completely decimated. The economy, verse 16 and 17, the economy will fail. You have multiplied like merchants above the stars of heaven. And, and so here's the idea. There's another kind of canker worm here, another kind of locust, and it's the older locust. After the younger locust has eaten up everything, he's now an old, a mature locust, and he's just going to fly away. And these are the merchants that came in and did all their business in Nineveh because it's a thriving city. He says all the merchants are going to see what's happening, and they're all going to run. Your economy is going to be destroyed. All your bureaucrats are going to run. The people who might have defended the city will flee against attack and abandonment at the last moment, flying away like a grasshopper flies. Now you read this story and you go, this is unbelievable. Here you are. You're the best arm wrestler in the world, right? You're Asher Banipal. And you're sitting in your palace going, what? You're, you're telling me what? Have you seen my army? I want Manasseh. One of his prophets just wrote this trash about my town. I want, I want Manasseh right here. No way this happens. I read this and I read history and how Ashurbanipal responded and you know what crosses my mind in conclusion? The little children's song about building your house on a rock. When an earlier prophet from Israel came through Nineveh and he said, you all are in trouble. How did that king respond? He tore off his royal robes. He put on sackcloth. He repented. How does Ashurbanipal respond? Bring me Manasseh. Bring him right now. And it just reminds me of what Jesus says there at the end of Matthew. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand and the rains came a-tumbling down, right? And when the rains came down, then what happened to the floods? What happened, kids, to all the floods? Right? The floods came up, right? And the rains came down and the floods came up. And what happened to that guy's poor house? Splat. Right? Did, did you read earlier? 
Did you read earlier what happens to Ashurbanipal's palace? Remember, we went over this. They redirect, the armies coming in, redirect the river, oh, that's the Tigris, right into his palace, and it floods. And the literal mortar melts off the walls. The house goes splat. And I just think about all the stuff we talked about earlier that Americans have been doing for the past century, building their house on financial security or American military strength or a constitutional system of government or on democracy or on technological innovations. And friends, that's all sand. That's sand. The wise man, though, kids, what did he build his house on? On the what? On the rock. And what's the rock? Remember Jesus said what the rock is. Whoever hears and, and obeys or does my sayings, he's like a wise man that built his house upon the rock. So we sing, build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rain comes down and the floods come up. But what does the house on the rock do? It stands firm. We'll not be saved by our money. We won't be saved by our government. We're not going to be saved by our military. We're not going to be saved by our technology. We can only be saved by him. And to people who've lost everything, what a message. Because they say, okay, God. Manasseh, sitting in a Ninevite prison. Okay, God. I'm going to trust you. I'd rather do it on the front end than the back end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.